evening and welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole, the podcast on children's books. I'm your host, Hannah. Also from the Down the Rabbit Hole team this evening, we've got Sam and we have special guests, Caroline O'Donoghue and Kate Saunders. This evening, we are going to be talking all about book crushes. Who did you fancy in children's books when you were a child? Who do you still fancy from children's books now that you're an adult? What is shipping and why do we feel it so intensely? So first of all, an introduction to our guests. Caroline O'Donoghue is the author of All Our Hidden Gifts and the Gifts That Bind Us and also runs the podcast Sentimental Garbage and so I feel is primed to talk about fanciable book characters this evening. Hi, Caroline. Absolutely. Very much my area of expertise. Delighted to be here. Uh, And Kate Saunders, who is the author of Five Children on the Western Front and The Land of Never Endings. Uh, Five Children on the Western Front was one of my fanciable book characters because it took characters that I loved when I was a child and then had them at an age when they were adults. Uh, And I also once heard Kate talking about the boy from Under the Bridge in The Railway Children and his romance with Bobby. And it has always stayed with me. So I feel like we have lots to discuss. Hello, Kate. Um, Hi, Hannah. Hi, everybody. Um, this is a very important subject. It doesn't get talked about enough because I think this is where we learn about romance. Children pre-puberty are very romantic people, even though our ideas are laughable if you look back at some of one's sort of fantasies when one was an actual child. Um, I was in love with Laurie and Little Women. Mm-hmm. Like many another innocent girl. I think it's. I think that is a really popular one, and I think also now with it having been a TV show, uh, sorry, a film again. It sort of reignited it for a lot of people. Oh, well, God, God people. I was literally yesterday, I was just, you know, sitting alone in my house watching that new scene in Little Women in the 2019 version of just uh, Laurie and Joe bonding through dance of them, just like meeting at this dance together and kind of just going around the kind of wraparound porch on this big grand house and sort of dancing. And I just wept. It's just, there's something about making connections at that age when you have so few connections to, to go on. And when someone brand new and silky and strange and, and just has the air of difference about them, just bombards into your world. I think that is really what happens in all the great child crushes of literature. I also think that being awkward at a party and finding the other awkward person is a really lovely trope. If you feel like you don't quite belong somewhere and you find the other person who doesn't feel like they belong. And they're also hot and rich. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's hilarious. I like that scene in the because Joe and Laurie behaved like teenagers, Mm. which is what they're supposed to be. And they always have them too elderly in previous films and in the book they're dancing by themselves and they would be that silly they're only kids and I thought it was absolutely charming and he is my fantasy Laurie yes yeah he was gorgeous do we think that oh go on Kate I was gonna say how I would have loved that film if I was 12 Mm. yes well that's what I want to ask you all I feel like a lot of when you experience these things for a first time as a young reader you don't know what it is you're feeling right and I think a lot of the language that we have around like our crushes and the people we fancied in the books we were growing up these are things that you read back onto yourself when you're a grown-up right I feel like how aware are you when you're reading these things as a child or a teenager like how much of it is actually a crush or crush or how much of it is 
just your 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 body is aching and feeling things in a way that you don't quite understand you're just drawn to this person I think a lot of it's like emotional infatuation in a way you just like that character so much and particularly if you're coming from a heteronormative thing and you think that also it has to be the other gender to you it's just Mm. someone you like very very much who is the other gender because as I have joked about I think with Sam before one of my big crushes as a kid was Aslan the Lion which is also something that Catelyn Moran has said I know I'm not alone in this there have been columns on the fanciableness of Aslan which I think probably has lots of terrible things because uh, he's also meant to be Jesus and it's probably not a great thing for child me but I, I, I think it's that I think it's someone that you like so very much when you're little I, I do think as well, I, I mean, there's lots of different terms for this in psychotherapy or whatever, that sort of latency period of like, the, the, the two emotions I remember most about being a child are dread and yearning. Um, and I think those are always the moments of my child life that I remember the most. And I remember liking characters and reading them in books and, and, and being charmed by them and wanting to hear more of what they had to say. But I also remember that deep kind of deep in my stomach yearning of like, I want to not only read more with this character, but also be alone with this character. And I'm actually actively jealous and resentful of the protagonist for being alone with this character. I've never felt that more, I think, than uh, in Goodnight, Mr. Tom, when Willie becomes friends with Zach. Do you remember Zach? Zach! Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Zach was a Willie's obviously the very timid um, sort of refugee who goes out, you know, to, to the old man who somehow just happens to be good at child rearing. <laughs> Better than See, I have, now I do. Anyway. I have a crush on Tom. And also when you get older, you realize that he's not quite as old as you think he is when you're a kid as well. He's like 50 odd, isn't he? Like, yeah, but in my head. Everyone out of the ancient. age of 25 is 50 odd in, in <laughs> yeah, kids very true but then um so you know Willie is like you know he's very even been abused he's maladjusted and he wets the bed and he's you know all those kind of things and then um Zach comes along Zach's from a theater family and he's Jewish and he's gorgeous and he's just charismatic and he's fun and and for some reason and this is a big part of it I think for some reason he really wants to be friends with Willie and that's a huge part of it is like someone who wants to be friends with the uncool vulnerable character despite everything And there's this scene quite late in the book after Tom has sort of officially adopted Willie where they all go on holidays together by the sea and Willie shares a bedroom with Zach and they go swimming together. And I remember just like burning (laughs) with jealousy (laughs) and rage. I never felt jealous of anybody. I didn't take it that personally. (laughs) (laughs) Just me then. (laughs) I think it's also interesting that when you're trying out love and romance you you can have a kind of parallel friendship thing which is often just as intense if not more so with a female character who's very charismatic somebody like I remember in um, what Katie did at school that old Victorian masterpiece and Rose Red at their boarding school is so funny and so naughty and so glamorous that you're really you're really hoping that she'll make friends with Katie and Clover and you admire her and kind of want to be her. Whereas I think with them, I don't think I ever felt jealous of anybody. I just liked reading about people who seemed really sexy, like <laughs> the guy in the railway children, who's um, you know, in Hare and Hounds when he's stuck in the tunnel and he turns out to be the kind old gentleman's grandson. So he's rich, he's eligible. Rich. Bobby is so going theme. to marry him. And it's just, I just found that very romantic and found him 
very, I'd have to say pre-sexy because I read it at an age when I didn't really know what that was. But you kind of single him out and think, hmm, wow, you're gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Why is, I remember him really well and I don't know why I remember him really well. Why is he gorgeous? Is it the sort of like athletic man in peril thing? Is yeah. That, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, that's I, yeah. exactly Because I can't remember anything else about him I can't him remember his name. Running, in peril, bag of Ooh. paper. That's all Ooh. I've got. Um, <laughs> but also Bobby gets to save him, which yes, I think is, is quite an exact part of the romance and yearning thing that Caroline was talking about. You know, she does sort of like minister to, to him and it's all very sweet and lovely. But I do get the jealousy thing. I think particularly when you feel like someone is is wasted on a character as well. A bit like what you were saying, the, oh, the yes. fact that you get picked. And I feel like we're all possibly going to agree on this next person, which is Dickon oh. in The Secret Garden. And Mary does not deserve Dickon. <laughs> no one deserves Dickon. So I think I had a bit of that, a similar feeling there where I was like, but you, you don't like animals enough. You're ungrateful. You're a brat. And Dickon is perfect in every way. Um, it's just the perfect love triangle that book isn't mm -hmm. it you can so tell that Francis Hodgson Burnett was a romance author because you have this thing of like you've got Colin who richer than God and, and just and just like adores well, well, Colin, her I've always thought even from quite a young age is gay I think. Colin's for he's sure gay yeah um, but, and but he is, adores her shipping madly shipping Mary and Dickon I, I like Mary and respect her and respect the way that she improves so much and you know what by by the time she's marriageable she'll be worthy of Dickon and um, and and I I always think they were just born to be together I'd have been very disappointed to there, read a sequel where they didn't there was a sequel oh no I think no, it was Holly Webb I think wrote a sequel that was also a wartime sequel a bit like yours and I but I think she marries Colin in of course the, she marries Colin. Yeah. You know? She doesn't marry Dickon. She can't Dickin. have Dickon. That's yeah. the thing. He's, yeah. he's the ideal, nature. right? Yeah. Yeah, Dickon wants to marry nature. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the thing, it sort of set, it sets you up for all the great romantic dilemmas which mm. of the, you know, the boy who would do anything for you and who you will inevitably crush versus the boy who has, you know, he's just a guy on the wind. Do you know what I mean? He just will give you what he has and it, it has to be no conditions, sort of king of the fairies, like you just have to be content with having him for as long as you have him and that's it mm. you know you can't control Dickon you can't marry Dickon <laughs> I was gonna say I think it's so funny that the, the only correct way to read this book I think is as a love triangle right but it's so much more interesting because that's not explicitly like the text of the book right the fact that there's this really strong engine of romance novel operating under the surface is what makes it driving and interesting but it's not there it's we're all pretending that this isn't a romance novel and that's why it's so sexy is because it's not about I think it would be so boring oh, if it was a romance novel right if it was grown-ups yeah. in this situation it wouldn't work the fact that it's all these characters don't quite understand what this is and the feelings and it's all new and fresh that's why it works that's why it's really rich and deep and interesting oh my god yeah and just on that I remember so clearly there's the scene where so you know her and Colin are friends first and then she meets Dickon and they she does garden stuff with Dickon and then Colin gets really jealous and he sort of like forces the maids to bring Mary into his rooms and play with him and she won't play with him and she won't speak to him even though she's locked in here with him and it just feels very like the, the power dynamics are very strange and weird. Mm. And I remember feeling strange and weird about it. 
but in like a very exciting way. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. I will also add, by the way, for anyone who loved the Dickon and Mary dynamic, Noel Stretfield has a lesser known book called The Painted Garden, which is about the filming of The Secret I Garden. I love it. It's, per- it's, it's perfect. It's the film of The Secret Garden but in it- Hollywood, wonderful setting. And there's a there's a there's a sort of there's a parallel Dickon, isn't there? The there is. Actor, the, the young actor is gorgeous. The boy playing Dickon is this magical wonder child who is a brilliant actor and also yeah. trains his own animals to perform yes. in the film. Uh, and the girl playing Mary is this horrible little child who's had to go to America for her dad's mental health. Actually, Noel Stratfield was very good at uh, addressing some of these issues quite a long time ago, and um, she's having a sulk. Finds a dog that's been tied up in the sun, goes and blasts the owner who turns out to be the person who is casting for The Secret Garden. And he thinks, what a brat, she's perfect. And she ends up getting the part of Mary in the Hollywood version of The Secret Garden. And she doesn't get on with Colin either. So it's almost (gasps) all of these things. It is such a wonderful book. And I don't know why it's not as popular as ballet shoes. And in fact, spoiler, um, Posey and Pauline Fossil are both in it as adults. It is a phenomenal book uh, and just glorious. And I would really recommend if you love the Dickon relationship. I can remember talking Mm -hmm. to this about uh, with Kate before. The Painted Garden by Noel Stratfield. If you wish to have more of that kind of triangle, (laughs) it's glorious. Fantastic recommendation. I was going to say, so what other characters have people fancied? Sam, I don't think you've... Well, I... So it's really funny because I was thinking back when you said, hey, Sam, let's do with this episode. I was thinking, who did I fancy when I was reading books as a kid? And... I'm gay. There's a different thing going on there when you're reading books as a kid. And I don't remember like fancying people. For me, I I think it's more like being drawn to people like we were saying earlier. And in that sense, I feel like in many ways, the yearning is can be in a friendship direction. It can be in a quasi romantic mm. direction. It can also be in like a parental direction. I know that um, Caroline, I was listening to an episode of Sentimental Garbage you did with Ella Risbridger, and you were talking about how Danny the champion of the world, Danny's dad is the most fanciable character in oh Roald Dahl. And he is really fanciable, even though it's like a father-son relationship, like you don't want to put sex in there. Oh. But why, why, sparky. why is Danny's dad so hot? And like, it, he is hot because he like secretly sneaks out in the middle of the night to like kill pheasants and like, he knows how to build traps <laughs> yeah. and he's got this secret life that like the kid doesn't know about. And, but he's also really, he's really, he talks like on a level with Danny and like he takes him into that world. There's a conspiratorial nature to that. What they have is something really special and a kind of parent child relationship that you don't get a lot in literature. Um, but also there's something more than that going on. I don't really know how to describe it, but there's there's something about Danny's dad. What do you that, think it is? There is there is you're definitely right in that he when he lets Danny in on the conspiracy. Yes. And there's never any real moment of like, you're too young for this. Because generally there, there's always this moment when children and adults have to pair up and do things together where the adult tries to deter the child and really he just has a secret from Danny and then he just lets him in and that whole I think as well that whole scene that um Danny taking the car out and rescuing his dad from this hole athletic man in peril athletic man (laughs) in peril 
Oh yeah, you're dead right. Yeah, it we is, cracked it. It is a thing. It is a thing. Athletic man in peril. I, I think that's so. I definitely felt that, but I was also I was when we were talking about the railway children. I was also thinking about it's not like a crush, but like the the feelings that you have towards um, Bobby's missing dad. And at the end, coming back, daddy, my daddy, you know, like at the return at the end, like there's some, there's like an, the emotional yearning runs all the way through that in a way that's very strong and obviously like parental and looking for stability and her old life back and things like that. But in many ways, it feels the same as like a strong yearning relationship that you have mm-hmm. in a book. And I think you can have that towards a friend as well. You can have it towards a parent. You can have it towards an authority mm-hmm. figure. I feel like the word crush like inserts like a sexual dynamic into it that doesn't always need to belong there sometimes it definitely does need to belong there but I remember like that felt like a very strong it's peculiar there was a book by Violet Needham that I found at a jumble sale and absolutely adored when I was a child it was called the bell of the four evangelists I thought it was marvelous and I got another copy of it years and years later because I lost it and um, it I realised why I loved it so much, which is that it, it's an urban relationship between a young man who's about 21 and a little girl of 12, you know, oh. where he says he's going to marry her when she grows up and he gives her little kisses on the tip of her little nose. And he just, I just thought, this oh. is why I liked it. Um, I mean, it's quite a good novel, but it wasn't the masterpiece that I, I thought of at the age of about 11, 12. Mm-hmm. And it's an extraordinary thing that it just... I thought it was brilliant, but it it did rather overstep the mark, I think. <laughs> it, it like, I don't mean any kind of filthy way, but I mean in a non-childish way. Because yeah. children's attraction, as you just said, is very fluid. You know, love is parental love, it's friendship mm. love, it's romantic love. And children have a very kind of romantic view of the world. And um, I think particularly if they're girls, are are very old fashioned in their romantic thoughts. I know I was. It's, you know, obviously very easy for all of us as adults and as as authors as well to be like, ooh, the inappropriate stuff above like these mm. weird things of like, you know, very, very young characters and, very, and much older characters. Like I remember being quite surprised by that in Fire and Hemlock by Diana Wynne-Jones, where it's sort of a character who meets someone at about 13 and he's about 27 and then when she's 18 and he's 30 odd they're together and you're like this is for 14 and up like it's it's but it was I was so mesmerized by those stories and also the idea that you could transgress into the adult world was so appealing to me. I think it's it leads on actually a little bit to YA and a bit about what you were saying about when someone picks you because I think that's something that often gets discussed around like fantasy novels like Twilight Mm. where the age gap is beyond the point of ridiculous that we almost don't acknowledge it anymore so twilight edward is 119 or something like that i think Mm -hmm. but because he's very pretty we don't worry about it whereas if he looked like he was 119 that would somehow no longer be romantic which i always Mm -hmm. think the interesting thing in fantasy with any kind well we've we've done a vampire episode before um which in fact both sam and i were on Mm. um and that you know vampires are a very odd sexy thing but i also think that part of it and what when i first read twilight i was still a teenager and i think it's very much like what you were saying about zach and willie because it's that he picks her 
He's never wanted anyone else in a hundred mm. years. He's the one mm. who's always on his own, but there's something just so special about Bella. And he's <laughs> old and he's filthy rich, as, which as we have discussed, seems to be a common theme. And, and he picks her. And I think that that's why so many young girls were so infatuated because it was the idea of being picked by someone who was that much older and wiser and special. And I think it's- a- yes, It was also being picked if you were a bit of a wallflower. Mm, you yes. thought of yourself as a bit plain, and yet you had wonderful inequalities, which this Marcus person saw. And I think that's a, a fantasy that lasts well into adult life, if not forever. Mm. But I think it's very potent because so many children's books are about being the chosen one. I mean, Harry Potter, for God's sake. Mm. Being special. The Pevensey children, you've been chosen to do something really special. And I always found that very exciting. Yeah, I, I, I interestingly, I've talked about this before. I hate that trope, and I resisted at all turns because I find it really alienating as a reader. Like, obviously, it's wonderful to fantasize about being the chosen one, but in real life, most of us aren't beautiful princesses or whatever. And so, I like to have the driving force of the narrative not be like it is your destiny to blah blah blah, but like you happen to have a talent for this specific thing, mm-hmm. you're going to use it to 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 be, you know, the hero of your own story, right? Other than like you're just special because because like that's if you don't feel special because of the great lineage mm-hmm. exactly because mm-hmm. this is a story goddammit and you need to be the protagonist <laughs> but um, I think how do we feel about the Twilight thing famously the reason I think it works so well people have said is that Bella is such a blank canvas you can you can put project yourself freely mm. she had hair and a face she's just like you um, <laughs> she's she's also incredibly clumsy which I think is something, and I feel free to be corrected, but I think it's something that a lot of teenage girls feel inherently, even if they aren't. Like your body is changing. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't feel like what it did before. And I mean, no, I don't think anyone's quite as um, clumsy as Bella, but there's that feeling of not feeling quite right and feeling awkward and clunky. And, but, you know, it's yeah. okay because Edward's there and he, you know. It's so interesting. I off. hadn't considered, when we started this conversation, I hadn't considered like, the cr- not the crushy the person having the crush in the in mm-hmm. the in fiction like how you relate to them and how that affects your crush I just kind of been thinking about I, me as a reader and how I feel about the characters but it's really about recognizing yeah what they feel and whether or not you see themselves in yourself I think as, as much I don't, as, think uh, I, I don't think I identified with the lovers I was a kind of looker on mm. very much fancying the hero for instance my mother used to do this and I, I inherited it, of sort of fancying the heroes of various Edwardian adventure stories, you know, um, the children of the New Forest, well, that's a Victorian one. Mm-hmm. The older brother I thought was very, very attractive. And that was being done in the 1980s on the television. So, you know, it, it stayed around for a long time. The idea of, I think his name was Rafe. He was so kind of noble, handsome. He was about 15. Very sensible name as well. Mm. Yes, he was enormous, romantic and brave. But I think that that maybe ties back in then to what you were saying about the the aspirational nature of it's not necessarily that you fancy someone when you're a child, it's that they are representing that bit of adulthood above you. And a bit like in the Diana Wynne Jones, that it's the children's books, but the age was a little bit older of, of some of the characters. I do think that older brother character is is almost on the verge of a stock character because I feel like in every um every you know book about 10 year olds there's a 14 year old other brother who's kind of in the background who pops in and out 
maybe he's got a great bike or something. Caroline, I want to ask you about Older Brothers because I just finished reading All Our Hidden Gifts and you have yeah. you have like a scene where the older brother shows up uh, for, mm. I think, is it Pat? <laughs> like he just shows up and like gives out some music and like is cool and attractive for a chapter and then goes away again. Yes. And I feel like, tell us why you put that in because it doesn't oh seem God. to serve a very strong narrative purpose. But I'm like, are you just putting like a heartthrob in here, just for lols. Like. Yes, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, so um, I was very aware when I started writing YA that, you know, it has a, YA is a very wide audience and uh, it can often be read by literally 14 year olds and often by women in their 20s, 30s, 40s or whatever, um, who just love the escapism of that. And I, I think it's just, um, a nice service to those women to say thank you for reading this book here is your age-appropriate crush <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and actually I just finished writing the third book and in that in the third book there is uh because Pat has even whatever tiny thin role he played in the first two books he has even less of a role to play in the third book and I was like there's not enough age-appropriate crush in here so I wrote in a sort of like a a French millionaire in his 40s who's gorgeous and <laughs> I was just like there we have it <laughs> Give the people what they want. That's what I say. I just think I it's say. polite. <laughs> it, it, it is polite. Thank you, readers. Thank you for reading this. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I get, I mean, I write middle grade, but I do get a lot of adults telling me that they fancy Uncle Matt, the wise uncle who takes 11-year-old Hal on his railway journeys around the world. Everyone um, does it. Catherine Rundle in um, the in Rooftoppers, yes. the dad in that, is just the most, he's like a guardian lonely hearts thing or something. Or what is it? <laughs> guardian blind dates. He's so... Guardian sexy. soulmates, yes. Soulmates. Oh, he knows about That's poetry. It. He can speak other languages. He appreciates <laughs> classical music. He doesn't care about cleanliness or like tidy, but like he's immaculately turned. Oh yes, absolutely. He lets you write on the walls of your own house as, oh, for as long as yes. it's Shakespeare. Like, and he's six old ladies. And he's you on yeah. books. Um, yeah, this is uh, Charles, I think, from Rooftoppers Charles, is, is yes. the name of the character. So actually, that was going to be my next thing, which is what tropes are there that we enjoy seeing and make us very happy? Because I for, I actually have a note on Charles um, and Mr. Tom feeds into this as well. And now Danny's dad, which is adult who just is exceptional at, at hanging out with a kid and having fun and being fatherly in some way. Um, another one that I have is, uh, well, he's not so much fatherly and fun but is Silas from the graveyard book who uh by Neil Gaiman which everything indicates to you that he is a vampire um and this tiny little baby crawls into the graveyard and is clearly escaping from something quite hideous the graveyard book's quite a scary book and he basically is Bagheera from the jungle book um the graveyard book is the jungle book but set in a cemetery and Silas is this character who really doesn't want anything to do with a human child particularly one that's alive and yet becomes the guardian of this child for the next 10 years. And he's one of my favorite characters and I just love him for his good, his excellent fathering skills. And I don't know if that's just because I'm now in my thirties, but I feel like I have always enjoyed characters like that. And I wondered what other people's thing that they still love seeing in a book, particularly in a children's book. Can I just interrogate this trope that I'm gonna term hot dads for a second? Because <laughs> okay. it does seem like we're talking exclusively about men. Yeah, where are the hot yeah. moms? I, and I think the men seem hot because they are meeting the bare minimum expectations oh, no. of yeah. being like, is it is a <laughs> is a competent man giving a shit? 
They're so attractive. <laughs> if it was a woman in that role, you'd think, yeah, basic, natural woman should be motherly, should look after you, that kind of thing. Oh, I wow. wonder, I don't want to ruin it for everyone. And I'm not saying it's not attractive, but I think perhaps one of the reasons it is attractive is because often for shame, we do not expect the same things of men as we expect of women. Sam, you just stabbed my favorite trope in the face. Hey, I still like it. But like, <laughs> if it is like Goodnight Mrs. Tom, as good a book i don't know that it is oh my god it's Ooh. not is it it's not as good a book because oh like god. of course of course she would take care of him and if she and if she didn't know how to take care of him she would be like you wouldn't like her as much you oh, expect but, and it's the professor in the lion the witch in the wardrobe as well who's the kindly yeah. old man who believes yeah. the same things that the children say and you think that he's lovely and mrs mcgreedy who's the housekeeper who's just trying to keep his house in damn order isn't yeah. awesome the only female version I can think of as hot dad, the um, hot mom or whatever, is the nan in The Witches. Oh, fair. Who smokes a cigar and knows everything about witches. Yes, very interesting. Very How... sexy role, doll. Mm, sexy. Yeah. <laughs> How about, um, oh God, is she, is she called Minty? The governess in Escape to the River Sea. I feel possibly fulfills that slightly I'm, I'm gonna have got her name wrong and it's gonna be really embarrassing but she's she's brought in to look after this little girl um who is having a hideous time and the family is clearly you know not prepared to look after her and then takes her to the, you know properly helps her experience the amazon uh and all the animals and the people there i feel like she's I'm not sure I could quite call her a hot dad, but I feel like she does. She is the woman who it's not her responsibility. And yes, she's not, yeah. but she doesn't seem an overly affectionate person. And she ends up fulfilling that role. I'm very excited for Emma Carroll's sequel, uh, which is coming out later this year. I, yeah, I think I, I feel like you have to be a lot more creative to make a mm, female character work true. in that role. Um but we're talking a lot about grown-ups. Like, wh what are the tropes of the of the of the younger characters that we feel drawn to? I feel like we talked about the secret garden, like the love triangle there being really clear. Mm -hmm. Are there any other good like love triangles that we can get behind, so to speak? A lot of them are in YA, I think, of of love triangles. But I think star-crossed lovers is another common trope. There's a there's a very big and important reason that they cannot be together. And it's, it's essentially started by Romeo and Juliet, which is kind of a YA. It is some very yeah. angsty teenagers. 13. Who, yeah, who have reasons that they can't be it is also, the, the star-crossed lover thing is, is very important because it's um, a man that you can't have sex with under any circumstances. So what's <laughs> is, is removed. It's like the mm. Twilight books where you know, it would kill you to sleep with a vampire, so you can't. Mm, so you true. never can. That changed later. But um, it is a, a trope that is there for little girls to make them feel safe because sex is a completely unknown thing. I mean, you remember in The Simpsons where Lisa's reading a magazine called Non-Threatening Boys. <laughs> I, I have that on a T-shirt and I should have worn it for this Zoom. <laughs> because the Non-Threatening Boy uh, trope is a, a really... And leads into the star-crossed lovers. We can never be together for X, Y, and Z reason. It might be magic or it might be skullduggery, but it means you're absolutely free to fantasize without having to fantasize, um, fantasize about something that you know nothing about. Mm. I think that was mm. very good. 
It's interesting because I think non-threatening boy very much as a trope, something I definitely felt when reading Famous Five about Julian, the older one. You know, he's so calm and in charge and knows things. He can, like, you know what I mean? He can like lead them through their daring do and their adventures. And like, it's completely non-sexual and fine, but it's just like, oh, old, that's, I feel like more that's like older brother. Brother is mm. the wrong term there, but like, it's like it a- It's more yeah. like hiking Peter who always comes across as as almost middle-aged, you know, like a parent. I was going to say, he is, yeah. he, he is terribly boring, though, isn't he, Peter? He's just, uh, the, the big brothers. It's, it's something it's, like... It's more I, like, I tell you what, it, it's, like, it's like your elder brother's friend or, like, the elder brother yeah. of your friend, um, which is literally what you do in All Our Hidden Gifts, Caroline. It's like, that's the main love <laughs> interest, is it's the older brother of her friend. That's true. Always like these very mysterious characters who run parallel to your existence. And it's always this thing. And this is an experience I had a lot when I was young because I have a slightly older brother who was much fitter than me. And so I often, <laughs> you too. It's, me too, it's such a burden. It's such a burden. <laughs> you never know whether someone wants to be friends for you with you or just so they can come to your the, house. The worst thing is when people meet your brother and then they go, oh, you look nothing alike. Your brother's oh. really hot. <laughs> I just killed it's awful sorry continue but I, I feel your pain but this thing of like I remember having friends over to stay the night and they would just be getting up at all hours of the day or night to get a glass of water downstairs so they could just run into my brother and it was all and he just no clue any of it was happening he was so on a different planet and I, I, I do think having I never had an older brother of somebody else that I was deeply in love with but I witnessed it from the, the other vantage point so much and found it so annoying <laughs> that I think I had to sort of write about it because it is so potent for people. And it is that thing of like someone you have known since you were wearing sort of footsie pajamas and you were going around their house and spend like going on holidays with them. And now they're like a man of, of sorts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a bit, a bit of a return to that, like, older brother in a new and more dangerous space, Kate, in Five Children in the Western Front, because Cyril and Bob's are both old enough to go to war. And they're your friends. When you read Five Children in it and the Phoenix on the Carpet, they're, they're very much your friends. And Cyril is, is not actually, I don't think, a particularly likable older brother in the first two books. He's quite stuffy and determined to be in charge. And then you wrote these beautiful young men who knew that they had to go off to war for their country and there's they don't want to spoil your book but obviously not everyone always comes home from the war and I I found like I had new feelings for Cyril as an adult that I hadn't had as a child because he sort of turned into that proper older brother that everyone could rely on um, and I feel like that was quite a thing for you was the realization that so many classic children's characters that are sort of now seen as the canon were the age to go to war and were probably quite tragic adults. I know, and, and Oswald Bostable in The Treasure Seekers is, is an irritating big boy to his younger sister, siblings. And, um, and Cyril, in the original Samuel books, is a, a, a tiresome older brother. The point is that I think he, he has all the seeds there for maturing into what he becomes. Um, they're, they're very much products of their age. I don't think I took any great liberties. You know, time and money was spent turning those boys into Edwardian gentlemen who would fight for the empire if asked and do their duty and be gentlemanly but rather dismissive of women and that whole thing. And, and in a way, heroic, because they were heroic, as any generation is, that 
has to give up so much. One thing that I'd like to look at and coming back to Uncle Nat is shipping which is obviously now it's such a big thing in the way that people talk about books and the emergence of fan fiction and characters that people believe should be together. Because I think you said, Sam, that a lot of people have, have oh. shipped Uncle Nat with other characters. Uh, so this, okay, I was like, I'm going to write a series that has like a mid 30 something single man who's going to travel the world and know a lot about things. I was like, I would love him to be gay and just be like, look, he's this cool gay guy traveling the world, living his best life. Um, obviously, you know, he's not having any sexual relationships in this middle grade fiction series that I'm writing mm-hmm. and he's single, so he's not with anyone. And then the minute we put him in a room with a human woman, everyone's like, oh, he fancies her, doesn't he? I really want to see those people together. And I was like, I didn't really want to put Nat into a very sort of standard monogamous relationship and be like, this is the only way to present gayness queerness or whatever um but we kind of had to to be like so we have like in the third book you know we start mentioning explicitly his boyfriend and stuff which is fine but I was like I really sort of bristled against the idea that it was kind of impossible to be a gay character in a children's book without being in like a long-term serious relationship Mm -hmm. um otherwise everyone would just read you straight and um I'm sure there are cleverer ways to do that but especially if you want to make it clear to a younger reader and to be very explicit about, you know, things without, you know, centering it within the narrative, because that's obviously not the point of the book or the point of the story in any way. But like, I wanted to make that clear to a reader, but we, when people were like, oh, he's going to get with Zola, this sexy journalist, isn't he? And we were like, no, he's not. Um, (laughs) So we're like, give him a boyfriend. Um, Who calls James, who's very nice and gets terribly worried about him. <laughs> Did anyone, um, Sam? I know this is a mutual friend of ours, so I know you've read this book. But um, Ella Risbridger wrote a kind of a expanded narrative of the Se- of the Secret Garden called Secret Detectives, and in that book, there's they're trying to solve a mystery on a ship, and there's so there's like all this tracking of where the different guests are staying and going, and what rooms they're in, and you have a very clear sense of what the ship looks like. And there's a two sentence subplot that says. Um, something like Mr. Andrews decided that he liked Mr. Roberts so much that he moved into his suite of rooms and then it just carries on and you're like as an adult reader you're like hello <laughs> what's Mr. Roberts and Mr. Andrews up to? Uh, it's really interesting because yep. I, again like it's I, I think that's that's a very economical way of making yeah. it very clear without needing to waste too much time on it um, but yeah it's very difficult to to present it's very difficult to present anything other than people assume a lot of heteronormativity when they're reading a kid's book and it's very difficult to present anything that's not that without really laboring the point and so you do have to kind of go through quite gymnastic exercises sometimes to make explicit what you're trying to do whilst at the same time like not really over egg the pudding and be like I'm pulling you down a path and I'm showing you something that I'm doing here Mm. um but I like that an awful Mm -hmm. lot because it's quite the the joy of that is it's very um very throwaway but very pointed which I I enjoy I think you're right in sort of sometimes it needing to be explicit because I also think a lot of there are queer relationships hidden in older children's books in a way that you just don't notice when you're a child returning again to Noel Stratfield the two lady doctors who live under the they're they're clearly a couple and you just don't you just don't consider well I didn't anyway I like to think maybe actually now 
today's kids would because we we aren't so heteronormative in our books now but it was funny to me to reread ballet shoes as an adult and go oh obviously obviously this is a couple the two lady doctors who took rooms together downstairs so so I could but I I read them as straight and so I can see why it's still a thing where you sometimes need to and so like yeah as a writer part of you wants to be really clear and be like no guys they're not straight for visibility but then also you're like why why yeah you have to find a a, you have to basically make a choice I think as an author about what line you're going to strike and just strike it all the way through so that you're either being very explicit about everything or you're being more coded or you're being more subtle Mm -hmm. I think and in different books and different authors it's more appropriate to do different things depending on the context and the shape of of the story and something like the secret detectives in a detective story where it's a lot to do with who was where and what were they doing with whom and we're uncovering everyone's secrets and personal lives it feels an awful lot more appropriate in some ways uh mm-hmm. to be about who is in whose cabin um, <laughs> do you uh, get do you get any shipping with the character of people wanting different endings for characters in your books um Carolyn because obviously you're YA and and there is a lot of, of romance in your books and I just wondered if you ever hear people being like oh well I would have actually preferred that this person and this person got together um I feel like the books haven't been out long enough for that sort of shipping ship to grow kind of thing but there definitely have been very interesting um some feedback about uh, uh, what's the most adorable to me is the amount of young girls I've had coming up to me in schools in the corridors after my talk is finished and saying um Fiona's gay right <laughs> <laughs> and um you know and it's been it's been very very nice uh and, and it's interesting to meet people midway through writing a character's journey and being like oh this is what they want this is so mm-hmm. clearly how it's being read and what they want and be able to guide your your character's journey in that direction I've also had like less positive experiences where I um so the so the sort of romantic hero in the book is a character called Ro who I don't want to do any spoilers because he does go on a journey with his gender throughout the book but the beginning of all our hidden gifts um is sort of like leaning towards a more gender fluid or non-binary space um I had a quite a few adult reviewers saying that his relationship with the protagonist Maeve was unrealistic Why? because because he's sort of femme presenting and and wears nail varnish and um traditional feminine clothing and that kind of thing and they just thought that you know magic and tarot cards coming to life was believable but this was a bridge too far you know <laughs> <laughs> Rose is desperately sexy I know uh, in both books I, I yeah I cannot understand I, that uh, and I think void. the reason the reason that Rose sexy is maybe partly to do with that transgression in the way that we've kind of set I think like all of the people we've talked about being fanciable for some reason are often often it's because they're transgressing some they're, st- they're standing outside the norm in some way right Ro has such a sense of the, the whole arc is to do with sense of self and mm. being very different I think is the one of the reasons why as a character so compelling completely and it was it was totally reflective of the kind of people I was drawn to when I was that age as well like we all like you know reading about the Dickens or whatever who exist in this kind of imaginary Edwardian paradise but when we're thinking of like the people we were actually drawn to at 15 16 it is sort of the boy in nail varnish for me anyway or or a boy wearing a choker under a school uniform like that stuff was like really somebody who 
um, would dare to have a private life despite the fact that they were wearing a school uniform and had to blend in otherwise was outrageously sexy to me and yeah like I, I it's it's still such a struggle for me to to understand <laughs> I think maybe a lot of people when they adults when they think of children's books think of the children's mm. books that they were reading when they were growing up and I think it's mm. often very difficult for people to read a book a book for younger readers now that kind of it just confronts you with how different the world is to when you were a child I think yeah. a lot of the time and because I think so much of romance was either more limited or more discreetly coded so you could ignore it if you didn't want to see it that can be a great challenge for people who have tried to live their lives pretending certain things don't exist Yes, if you're still stuck on Dickon in a love triangle that never existed, like modern YA and modern romance is, is probably a challenge to, to some people coming It'd in. Terribly frightful for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we are probably actually drawing to the end. I feel like we've covered a lot of tropes, a lot of different romances, the, the way that we uh, felt about characters when we were children and the way that we still feel about them when we're grown up as well. So thank you to both of our guests for joining us. This is your opportunity to um, give a plug to what you're working on. I feel like we've actually discussed both of your books, but I feel like you might want to take a moment to tell us what you're working on, uh, what's available at the moment. Oh, sure. Uh, well, I have a young adult fantasy series that I'm working on. The first two are out. They're called All Our Hidden Gifts and The Gifts That Bind Us. They are a sort of a uh, Irish, urban, uh, magical realist sort of real world journey through tarot cards and friendship um, uh, and the yeah the third one I've just finished the first draft of Ooh. And, uh, yeah we'll probably out next year okay. and Kate um, I'm I haven't finished the first draft off but I'm working on a story that's sort of inspired by the children who are in the sound of music it's about a girl <gasps> who gets Ooh. to be in a musical and go off and join a family and she hasn't got a family she's an only child and so she makes friends with these children who are supposed to be her siblings and it's basically a story about um there is a romance in it between her mother and one of the actors and it's just basically a, a story about the experience and it's the first time I've written without magic so Ooh. I'm finding it extremely difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that should be finished soon. And I forgot what the last book I had published was. I've just become reindeer during the pandemic. Because I had two oh, reindeer books. You did. Yes, for the holiday market. Mm -hmm. And Sam, I, I know you have two new books. Oh my goodness, I am... Um books coming out my ears at the moment um so when you hear this episode i would have just uh, released or just be about to release two books in february one uh, is the fifth installment of the avengers on train series called sabotage on the solo express where there is actually a nascent crush between uh two young characters who hate each other but do they um uh, which can't believe we didn't something... even discuss enemies to no, love I know, I know, right? I feel like we, oh we've God. totally skipped over so many tropes <laughs> i know they well anyway they they hate each other and they're both fiercely intelligent and think that the other one is stupid um but love clearly it. are gonna like cut to 15 years later in their marriage um mm -hmm. and uh so that's coming out on the same day as epic adventures my non-fiction book which is all about uh, amazing railway journeys around the world uh, which is good for readers of all ages, but especially young ones. 
Thank you. Well, thank you everyone uh, for listening, zooming and joining us. Please do share online your book crushes with us. Uh, join us next week. Now that we are running as a season, you'll have weekly episodes of Down the Rabbit Hole and next week will be a discussion of food in children's books. So thank you everyone for joining us and good evening. Thank you.